So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Consecutively flipped heads or consecutively flipped tails, you know, stay standing, other people sit down. If you do that flip 10 times, you're going to end up with 10 people on each side that have consecutively flipped heads and consecutively flipped tails. This is a very helpful exercise to us to remember that underlying almost everything that happens to life in life is randomness. And I was really taught this by Dr. Deming, Dr. W. Edwards Deming, the father of the quality movement. When I was 23, 24 years old, I was able to study with him when I was at Pepsi. And the, yeah, the underlying foundations about uh, life really come down. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Andrew Stotts. Andrew, thanks for doing this. My pleasure to be here, Jess. Well, it was really fun to be on your show, and everybody should be going and checking out Andrew's show. It's called My Worst Investment Ever. And I, I told him about a two and a half million bucks I put into a renewable energy deal that was so close to working, and instead we lost all our money, which really sucked. But it's it's an interesting thing. So, Andrew, do you want to give us just the quick background on what you do and the show and and kind of where these six principles we're going to cover came from? Okay. So basically, I, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. I moved to California and went to University of Cal State Long Beach, studied finance, went to work for Pepsi for three years as a management trainee in manufacturing. And, and then somehow I managed to move to Thailand in 1992. I built a career in finance and I thought to myself, you know, I wanted to do a podcast. I wanted to talk about finance, but I just realized that, you know, it's a very crowded space. So I tried to, to think about an original idea of what I could do. And I came up with this idea of my worst investment ever. And I sent out a message to people on my email list and I didn't expect much to the answers to the question, could you tell me about your worst investment? And instead I got 500 written stories of loss from people that I knew. And that's really the origin of where the where the podcast came from. So that's kind of the story of the podcast. Today I'm going to be talking about basically six lessons that I learned from now 300 plus episodes and 500 written stories that have been submitted to me. So I think it's fascinating. I think it's a really interesting thing. I think that, you know, my friend Josh, business partner was on there. And when he said, hey, do you want to do this one too? There's like this gut check of like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to tell people that I've ever made a mistake. I've been trying to create this like cardboard cutout version of myself that everybody knows I'm perfect. <laughs> I don't want to go like publicly announce I'm a mere mortal, right? And yet what a service because the business media doesn't typically cover this. And yet it's so, and if they do, it's a sensationalized version, right? Look at these villains. Look at these villains who didn't have a crystal ball, right? So, well, and, and talk for just a second about, you know, PhD, CFA, like you, you really are a student of this. Can you talk about kind of that yeah. aspect of your background? Sure. 
I think, you know, when I was young, I really fell in love with finance. And I did my MBA while I was in Los Angeles and working at Pepsi. And my, my hat, I have to tip my hat to Pepsi for funding that while I was working there. And then uh, when I came to Thailand, I realized, you know, when I really started, I, I started in Thailand as a teacher and I taught finance. But after one year, I realized I'm not going to make any money <laughs> in teaching in Thailand. And so the stock market was booming. It was 1992, 1993, and uh, it was one of the fastest growing countries in the world and one of the most exciting stock markets in the world. And so I got a job, a chance to be an analyst in the stock market. That was September of 1992. By January of 1993, the stock market had doubled just in my first four months. And then it peaked in January of 1994. And the stock market proceeded to collapse 90% over the next for three to four years. And then eventually, if you if you were a US investor, the dollar, the, the bot also collapsed, meaning you would have had about a 95% loss in your money at that time. But that was kind of where my career started. I was a bank analyst covering banks for 10 years, you know, going into the boom of 1997, and then the crisis of 1997, and then covering those banks as they came out of the crisis. So I learned a lot about banks and and, you know, the struggles that, that they go through with their customers who are going bust and all that. Meanwhile, on the side, my best friend Dale came from Ohio, where we grew up, to visit me. He was studying Japanese in Japan. And then he said, hey, let's start a coffee factory in Thailand. So in 1995, we took all the cash I had from doing my job as an analyst, and we set up a factory. By 1997, the bot collapsed. Asia collapsed. I lost my job as an investment banker. All of our dreams of our, you know, fantastic coffee business collapsed. And we basically moved into our factory on the outskirts of Bangkok. And, you know, I, I, I'll tell you a story of loss of my own, Jess, that really is part of why I really love this show, because I really believe that loss is, you know, it's a very physical and it's a very real situation. It was August 1998. I had lost my job as an investment banker. The stock market had been collapsing. The bot had cut in half, basically, in value. And our dreams of our factory, you know, disappeared. And we were in this room, which was the accounting room, where we moved out the desks and we put in two beds, like going back to university. And one Sunday morning, it was raining all night and in the day. If you can just imagine this heavy, heavy rain and just that smell of dark darkness. And I got a call from my sister, Kelly, and she said that her cancer had come back and that she only had a month to live. And could I please come home as fast as possible? When I hung up that phone, I just cried, you know, and, and Dale and I both cried in that room. And, you know, it's like I lost everything in, in business. And now I'm about to lose my sister. And I, I got on a plane. I went home and, and within a week, unfortunately, my sister died and left three beautiful girls. And then I, I stayed there for a month and I can't, had to come back to Thailand to a very depressed situation and then slowly claw myself out. So when I ask people to come on and share their stories of loss and, and, and pain, you know, I, I've been there. And that's part of what I enjoy about the show is that I can relate to what people are going through. Well, and I think that, you know, you think about shame, right, as, a, as an emotion, which is typically extremely unhelpful. But like embarrassment and shame, like thrives in the dark and thrives on us feeling like we're the only one. And, you know, like people like my business here, Warren Buffett, right? You know, people lightly gloss over like the kind of huge problems that he had at Solomon Brothers and like, you know, that Berkshire Hathaway <laughs> is a failed investment of his that he feels like he held on to too long. You know what I mean? And that all gets glossed over of like, oh no, you know, there's, there's nobody with the Midas touch that everything they touch goes perfect. But do you have the guts to pick yourself up out of the mud and get back on the horse? Do you know what I mean? Like these are the, the endurance and, 
trying to make less mistakes and these kind of things is the people who end up figuring it out in the end, right? It's totally true. And, you know, I mean, the other thing that having lived through the 1997 crisis in, in Asia, you know, people walked off of buildings because of the money that they lost, the shame that they felt, the pain that they felt. I mean, they left their families with serious debts. I mean, it, it is serious and it is real. And, you know, we're going through a pretty tragic time economically, you know, around the world right now. And I think it's even more important for people to hear that, that loss is part of life and that, as I like to say, it's, it's only money. It's only money, you know, and, and when we win and we lose. But, you know, so I really want to highlight, and, and if you talk about the shame, I mean, I, every guest I get on, I ask them, you know, I, I really implore them to talk about the emotion because, you know, you could listen to a, an episode and say, well, I didn't do that or I'd never do that. But, you know, that I, I'm not a, a real estate guy or I'm not a private equity investor. I'm not that. But when someone talks about the emotion of thinking that they're doing the right thing and finding out that they did the wrong thing or it didn't work out and the pain and the capitulation of that, it's that emotion that we all can relate to. And I think that's really what what I'm going after and that I hope can can snap some people out when they listen to say hey I'm just about to make that mistake you know think about when 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 you and I talked before the episode I was saying try to put yourself you know think about that man or woman out there who's just about to make this mistake and if we could just stop that one person for that one moment to listen it could be all worth it well I think that's what I love about like stoic philosophy and like Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, and this idea of that we can make choices independent of our circumstances. You know, you may not choose what happens to you, but you can choose how you're going to react to it. And it's not like some pithy, like, like raw, raw guy on a stage saying that. It's like Marcus Aurelius, whose like entire society is falling apart from a plague. You know, it's Epictetus, who's, you know, a slave and his master beats him and his leg gets crippled and he won't take him to the doctor. The guy's crippled for the rest of his life. And like, you know, it's people who have like a real issue and say this, Victor Frankl in Nazi prison camps, they've killed his family, taken away his research, all this stuff. And yet he goes on to improve, I mean, thousands and thousands of people's lives by not giving up, by, by talking about how he talked his friends out of suicide in Nazi prison camps. And, and like just radically inspiring people in spite of hardship he went through and, and honestly, because of it, because of what he chose to do after it. Right. So, yeah, it's interesting uh, about Victor Frankl because, you know, nothing in his book refers to money as the source of how we feel about ourselves and or investment or anything like that. We know, we all know that the way we feel about ourselves is much deeper than money. And so, you know, I'd like to help everybody to think about that, you know, and, and, and focus on that because life is way beyond money. Yeah, it's it's interesting actually how passionate I've gotten about my, my soapbox of anti-speculation because, because of the pain I've been through. And, you know, recently we had a close family friend that's trying to promote why everybody should be buying Bitcoin and and their reasonings behind it were like, you could, you could swap it out. You could swap it out with any speculative bubble type of things. Oh, well, these rich guys are buying a lot of it and they're never wrong. And like, it wasn't fundamentals. It wasn't, there's obviously no discounted cash flow to do, <laughs> you know? So in many ways it'd be hard for Ben Graham to ever call that an investment in the first place. Right. But you know, like I, I've spent like quite a bit of time with this individual, helping them understand how, like why, if there is no future cash flow stream to value, it doesn't have intrinsic value. It's, it's like a commodity. It, you're, you're trading based on people's emotions. And it is born out of my deep, 
personal pain that I am so passionate about it, you know, and then mm. told me to tone it down a couple of times. <laughs> well, you know, it's when the, when the uh, COVID crisis happened in Thailand, you know, and everywhere around the world, I realized that a lot of young people aren't going to get jobs and, you know, everybody's struggling and, and I don't, don't have the budget to go out and hire a bunch of people to expand my business. You know, that's going to be tough and it's kind of work from home environment. But over the last 12 months I've had now, I did a strategy, which I just thought would be interesting. I went out to young people and said, you may not have a job right now, but you know, I have some internships available and I can give you experience and train you, you know. So in the last 12 months, I've had about 100 interns that have worked with me in Thailand who are all terrified about the future. And my goal really was, you know, they helped me a lot, obviously, but then I tried to help them in understanding how to build a skill and become more marketable, but also how to feel good. That, that's interesting. I didn't know you did that. We, we've, we've done the same thing with about a dozen, you know, finance students this year. Yeah. I didn't know you did that. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, what I learned and I talked to them a lot, you know, is, is, you know, you universities aren't teaching people, I think as well as in the past at how to think, how to analyze, how to critically analyze. And, you know, the foundation of really what makes you successful in, in investing in particular is what you're talking about with this Bitcoin situation and that is the research. And it's, it's almost, it's, it's very difficult for many young people to objectively analyze something. And I think that that is a skill that I want to share and I want to show how important that is. So it's, it's really part of the mission. Yeah. Well, and I'm probably going to get some angry emails from people about how great Bitcoin is, you know, and let me just say like, what I explained to this person is, listen, a lot of people make money gambling. Do you know what I mean? It, it happens, right? But if you're looking for what Warren Buffett would call a high predictable way to make money, but not having a cash flow element to it, Bitcoin would not qualify for that martial art. You know, that mm. if, if you want to make money the Warren Buffett way, it wouldn't qualify. You know, people have made tons of money speculating on gold up and down over the years and things like that. It doesn't qualify for a Warren Buffett style investment. It's, I'm not saying it can't be done, but what I'm saying is it can't be done within the Warren Buffett valuation of discounting the cash flow when there is zero. But well, let's move I have on. A, Go ahead. I, I have a 75 year old friend of mine that really wants me to help him to put his money into Bitcoin. And, and I just, you know, talked to him about the, the risks of losing all your money at that age. You just can't earn it back. But I have come up with kind of my, my little way of, of looking at it. I did do some research to look at cryptocurrencies as a whole, focusing really on the top three of them and try to, you know, see, okay, is this a separate asset class? What is the behavior of these? And you know, I think, I think there's enough evidence there to say you could call it a different asset class. It moves differently and, and all that. And, you know, I, I think that what I recommend now to someone is that, you know, if you want to buy Bitcoin or, or that cryptocurrency, I, I think, you know, there's some fun in it. There's an opportunity that you could get lucky with it. So my recommendation is I, an allocation of between zero and 3% of your total assets. Have fun. Yeah. Like the money that you're fine taking to Vegas and lighting on fire. Yep. And that, that gets me out of trouble now because I'm not saying don't buy it. I'm just saying, you know, within those parameters, buy it. Yeah. Well, listen, I, I think I'm looking forward to today's episode. Uh, I want to get into this six ways to lose your money and six strategies to win. Uh, why don't you start, start us off with the first one? Yeah. I mean, the, basically what I did is I, I analyzed all the different stories that I got and from my analysis, I could group them into six different groupings. And, and can I verify here? Is it 300 episodes separate from 500 written stories or are those within? Correct. Them? So Correct. 800, 800 stories. Yep. Okay. And after analyzing all, all of these, basically, I realized that 
there's common mistakes that people are making. And the most common mistake, really the best example of this was one of my episodes, Josiah Smelzer. And he was a guy that really wanted to go in and flip houses and make money from that. And so it wasn't investing in the stock market. But, you know, his story is pretty powerful because everything went wrong in his investment. But most importantly, he didn't hire a, an independent you know, appraiser. He didn't hire the third party people to come and look at it and give him advice. He thought he knew what he was doing and he just simply didn't do the research. And when he came, when it came to selling it eventually, and you know, the funny thing was that everything went wrong. And on the last day, only minutes before the buyer, let's say hours before the buyer is about to arrive, a guy was cleaning the chimney of this house that he was desperately trying to sell after six months. And what he, what happened was the guy put a vacuum up the chimney and didn't realize that the vacuum was on reverse. And he blew black soot from the chimney all in the living room <laughs> only three hours before the house was about to transfer. So he was talking about his final rush to actually, he said, you couldn't wash it off. You had to paint, you had to get paint quickly and start painting. So, you know, he, he basically illustrated to me and as well as many others that the number one most common mistake that people make is that they fail to do their research. And that's it. I think about this. I think about dumb things I've lost money on. And I did it because, you know, whether it's they were smaller things and it was just like, oh, I trust them doing that. I should do it too. Or like in our case, unfortunately, at our previous fund, it's like, well, this billionaire who's co-investing with us so we can do it with this multi-billion dollar public company, they've obviously done their research. I'm sure it's fine. You know, and we get some engineer and he pretty much, he gives us the song and dance. And we're like, oh yeah, those guys, those guys will for sure figured it out. And we just mm. assume we're writing their research. And, you know, we didn't put the kind of level of effort in had we been doing it on our own. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. It's that kind of well, like the reason humans get called sheep can lose you a lot of money. Yeah. And what you're talking about is a kind of a, a behavioral issue where you're relying on someone else and you're feeling comfort from the fact that there's someone else that's smart in, in this deal. And that's even a separate thing of just, you know, other people just simply don't do any research. But both of these things will end up ultimately in, in pain. And so I think that's, a, you know, that's a, a, an important lesson. So what I try to do is tell people to, you know, anytime that you're working on consider, you're considering an investment, that you really need to write it down. And I, I recommend for those people listening, if you've got an investment that you're looking at, just get an empty piece of paper and just write down what are all the things that you like about it? What are the return expectations? Don't worry about what's going to go wrong. Focus on what's going to go right. Why are you investing in this? Get it all down, why you like it. And that is the beginning of your research. But the second part of your research comes from what I would say is the second most common mistake. And the, the second most common mistake is fail to properly assess and manage risk. And uh, a great illustration of this is one of my guests, Jeremy Newsom, out of Canada, in fact. And Jeremy basically started investing in the stock market when he was young and he was enthralled. And he invested in some, he made, he made, he had had some good investments and they went up a bit and he had borrowed his money, got money, some money uh, from working when he was a kid and then got some money from his father. And they were both happy after that first investment made a lot of money. But then he saw nickel and he decided he was going to play nickel. And so the price of nickel was going up. And so he convinced his dad to give him more money. And then he put his money into nickel, as he says, 15 minutes before the peak. And, you know, he had no risk management in, he didn't assess the risk. He didn't manage the risk. He didn't know anything about that. And, and it ended up 
that not only did he, he didn't buy nickel, he bought a derivative instrument that basically moved in relation to nickel, but in a much more extreme way. And the result was within a very short amount of time, he lost 100% of his money, all gone in his second major trade. But what made this story so powerful and why I highlighted is that he was 21 or so. And where did he get the money? He got the money from his dad. And it turns out that his dad gave him 100% of his retirement savings. So this is an example of where, you know, it gets real. Loss gets real. And, and the shame and the pain that Jeremy felt for, you know, having put his family and his father in that type of circumstances. And that's the type of real, you know, shameful situations, as you talked about, you know, the word of shame, you know, that Jeremy went through. So, you know, highly recommend that people listen to that as a way of kind of reminding ourselves about risk management. He, you know, Jeremy went in not knowing anything about what he was doing. So that's a, that. Yep. So I want to talk about that on our six strategies to win. I want to, I want to emphasize the two strategies to win for these first two. And and maybe like, let's start with the first one on, on doing your own research, any kind of yep. rules of thumb, any kind of things to tell yourself to, to give myself a test. Okay. I really can feel like I did enough research on this one. Well, I would say that from my perspective, the first thing about research is that now we can combine these two top two mistakes and, and wrap it all up into research. And I want to tell a story about my own research in relation to coffee works. So we are a, coffee, a B2B coffee roaster supplying hotels, restaurants, coffee shops, offices in Thailand. But we had an opportunity to expand to Vietnam. And my business partner, Dale, you know, came across this opportunity. It was, it was a global brand that we could partner with. We could acquire the uh, company in, in Vietnam and, and really hit the ground running. And so Dale and I agreed that he would do the research on that. And so he went to Vietnam. He met all the different parties. He ran numbers. He went through everything. He went to visit the customers of those companies. And, you know, in the end, we agreed that we would have a meeting about the upside of this, not about the downside. And so we basically met and Dale presented all of his research that he had done, his projections. And we went through those and talked about those in detail. And at the end of it, we said, okay, no decision. We're not going to make any decision. So I already gave you the advice of writing down your return on one piece of paper. The next thing that we do that I would advise is get a separate piece of paper. And now you're going to write down your risk. So we agreed that the following week, we would meet together to talk about the risk, not about the return. And so it gave us, first of all, time to think over the week. It took the emotion out of it. I'm not threatening Dale's ideas. You know, his ideas are very valid and his research is valid on the return. But when we got together on that second time, we tore it apart. And we looked at everything that could go wrong. And from that, it turns out, you know, we decided not to go into this investment, even though Dale was very excited about parts of it. And I was too. So I think my, my most valuable advice in this case is separate risk from return research. And when you look at risks, focus on what I would say the probability and the severity of those risks. And that can help you to create a risk reduction plan. I love that. You know, I think about, you know, I've got a laundry list of the dumb investments I made, especially, <laughs> I think the younger I was, <laughs> well, the less experienced I was, the less, um, the less I was looking at the downside on things, you know what I mean? The more I was almost like believing my own sales pitches, right? And yet one of the things that, that saved us $4 million once was a joint venture we were doing in the energy space. And, and as a way to manage the risk, we said, hey, listen, we'll release funds as this happens and that happens. And, and, and they told us how much it would be. We needed about $4 million. We go out and raise the money. And luckily we didn't hand over the cash because they couldn't even hit the first milestone. And, and when we challenged them on it, there was this still baffles me to this day. The CEO said, well, we never promised you we'd get properties of that quality. I was like, 
was I like supposed to invite me to want to give you the money? What? <laughs> you know, and and we did bring our own engineers to that meeting, you know, and when his engineers, when his engineers couldn't pass our engineers previously agreed upon quality standard, luckily, we still had the formula in our account, you know, you know, you mentioned about milestones. And one of the one of the courses that I've taught for years is equity valuation. And I turned it into an online course called the Valuation Masterclass. I've had a lot of students through that course. And then I was head of research, running research teams for many years, and I was an analyst myself. And I saw common mistakes that people were making in research and in valuation. So I wrote a book called Nine Valuation Mistakes and How to Avoid Them to try to address those nine mistakes that I saw. And what I learned, though, and I teach my students is that uh, seven or sorry, six out of the nine are mistakes related to forecasting. Only three of them are mistakes related to valuation, where, you know, you're talking about the discount rate or the terminal growth rate. So I try to teach the students that really research has so much to do with uh, projections and you mentioned milestones and that type of thing I think that you know projections and milestones are part of really the, the main part of what matters when you're doing your research and so if we talk about that research aspect I think that's a, a big part of it well it's it sure worked out well for us of hey we will dole cash out as these certain qualifications are met you know I, I really I would be really sad had we not done that let's go for number three here tell us about All number right. three so number three, this is a, a really interesting Thai man named Jim uh, Ponwanit, and he basically was a guest on the show. He actually had made a lot of money in the U.S. You know, rally after the 2008 crash. And basically, he got obsessed with the idea of investing in volatility with this money that he had and that he had accumulated. And basically, he did his research and all that, but eventually he put his money into a volatility trade and within a very short amount of time he lost about 40 percent of that money and basically his research the problem he was doing was that he was he was refusing to look at other people's research he was only focused on his research and this is you know you know one of the big issues that i've seen in the end after it went down by 40 percent you know what would anybody what would a normal person do they would, you know, sell out, they would be terrified. But what did he do? He put the rest of his money in it. And then eventually he lost almost all of that money. So I think he lost in the end about 70% of his money by the end of this whole trade. And the conclusion from this is mistake number six, driven by emotion or flawed thinking. Now the area of behavioral finance is a big area. So I'm trying to kind of combine both of them into this one. So when you think about this driven by emotion or flawed thinking, it's interesting this idea of to find and explore and list opposing views, discuss with a knowledgeable and objective person, right? Yep. I think about, you know, I've got my undying love for Warren Buffett and his mentors, Ben Graham and Phil Fisher and Charlie Munger and his followers, Howard Marks and Bruce Flatt and many others. And it's interesting if, if people read Howard Marks' newest memo on the Oak Tree website that just came out this week. And, and he talks about, you know, have we looked at value investing like it's a religion? You know, are we open-minded to opposing things? And he just talks about how, where he grew up, you know, being raised by depression era parents in the sixties with some of the mistakes that were happening around some stuff with modern portfolio theory and these kind of things. And it shaped his thoughts and, and that the way the world had tried to, what he now calls a false dichotomy, create a difference between value investors and growth investors. And he just goes listing through all these things that people like Warren Buffett have said about how it's a false dichotomy and how in the last year, because he's had his son living with him and, and his son's family during COVID, that his son has opened his mind to new ways to think about tech stocks 
from, I'm not going to call it a value mindset, but from more of a Warren Buffett-esque mindset and that a high PE ratio isn't necessarily mean this and a low PE ratio doesn't necessarily mean it's a deal and that it has much more to do with its future cash flows than some narrowly defined broad brush thing that somebody in the media essentially made up, you know? Mm, and, yeah. and he talks about Bitcoin in there and he talks about at age 75 as a multi-billionaire with a, you know, I think it's like 160 billion in Oak tree, right? Huge, amazing track record, how he is currently reconsidering some of his thoughts. And, you know, just yesterday I was listening with my nine-year-old son and my 14-year-old son, we we're picking up stuff for our snowmobiles and, we're listening to the Tao of Warren Buffett by Mary Buffett. And there's that one in there about when principles become dated, they may not be principles anymore. And it's, it's interesting, right? It's fascinating. Now, of course, was it Philip Fisher in 1929 that basically or, uh, that, that said that the stock market's only going to go higher? So it's so hard. That's what's so hard about finance. Is, is this a, a story of, of a value investor capitulating at the moment when all seems lost? Or is this a story of wisdom? And I think what I teach in that, in my, in my, what I always say to my students at university and online is that if you leave my course feeling less confident, then I have succeeded. That's so great. And, yeah. And my point is, is that, and as I write in my, in the book, Nine Valuation Mistakes, I basically say that, you know, finance, there, there is no science in the world of finance. You know, when we look at it, we don't have laws such as the law of gravity. The law of gravity doesn't change even over time. But, you know, we have modern portfolio theory. We have arbitrage pricing, you know, theory. We have the capital asset pricing model. And the problem is for a lot of young people, particularly, they're really excited about finance. They actually think these are laws, but these are only just theories and models and guidance. It's, it's interesting, right? Like I think about specifically ways Howard Marks has challenged me. You know, for the Warren Buffett camp, there's a lot of looking down our nose on the efficient market theory, right? Because Warren's track record wouldn't exist if that was actually true. Mm. And, and yet Howard says, hey, listen, I was at Chicago when that was getting invented. And yes, it's, you know, over 40, 50 years that it's been obviously proven untrue in many ways. But at the same time, you look at when Warren Buffett used to look up stocks in the back of a Moody's catalog versus now computers calculate any kind of inefficiency and automatically notify you and thousands of other people about it. it says like, where is this information inefficiency that you're so confident about? You know, like, are you patting yourself on the back prematurely? He's like, you know, one of the reasons he likes, you know, the, the fringe of the credit world is because it's a more opaque market. And, and as a result, there's more chances for mispricing where the opportunities can come from. Right. Yep. And, and he said like, Hey, if you don't claim to have information that others have, maybe you ought to have a look in the mirror about just how much smarter than everybody you think you are. Yep. Right. Yep. It was interesting. I, I, I thought to myself, well, anyways, it was, it was a wake up call to me, you know? Well, I think, you know, one of the things I teach in my class is I just, you know, do an illustration and I've done it live when I've had big, big groups. I'd had up 2000 students at one point in one event and I did this game, but I basically, have, have people imagine 10,000 people in a stadium stand up, flip a coin, and if, you know, whoever flipped heads 
go to one side, whoever flipped tails, go to the other side, and then say, okay, flip again. And if you've consecutively flipped heads or consecutively flipped tails, you know, stay standing, other people sit down. If you do that flip 10 times, you're gonna end up with 10 people on each side that have consecutively flipped heads and consecutively flipped tails. This is a very helpful exercise to us to remember that underlying almost everything that happens to life in life is randomness. And I was really taught this by Dr. Deming, Dr. W. Edwards Deming, the father of the quality movement. When I was 23, 24 years old, I was able to study with him when I was at Pepsi. And the, yeah, the underlying foundations about uh, life really come down to there's, there's just a, a level of, of, of uh, randomness. So that then brings us to the next question. And, and I think some great um, academic research has been done in the world of finance called false discoveries, where we think that we've found someone that outperformed. Let's just take Warren Buffett. You could say, come on, Andrew, what's the probability that somebody could you know, win so many years in a row? Well, there is a probability. And once you really understand variation, there is a probability. And a false discovery in the world of finance is saying, attributing to skill that which, which probably was luck. Now, again, you're going to say, what? How can you possibly say that Warren Buffett is luck? But remember that, you know, so much of this is hindsight bias. And now we understand him and we understand his method, but it just could be that his method at that time, you know, was just, he just happened to be, you know, he's a smart guy, but there's a lot of smart men and women out there. So yeah, I'm not you know, saying that he's driven by luck, but what I'm saying is don't discount the role of luck and don't attribute luck to skill or vice versa. Well, and you think about this idea in the, in the, how can you discount whether that was luck or skill, Right. You know, any two points make a straight line, right? Yeah. How many, how many points can we continue to plot on here? You know, weighing the skills of, is this more towards luck or is this more towards skill, right? Of mm. This person who we're trusting, you know, you look at like exactly what you said, like how many, how many of the guys that correctly predicted the dot-com meltdown correctly p- predicted the, the 2008 meltdown? Not too yeah. many got yeah. both, right? <laughs> Let alone, and the Corona <laughs> <laughs> one, right? Well, there's, okay. there's this tremendous amount of, I mean, there's much more scientific research and, and statistical analysis that can support the idea that that person succeeded from luck than skill. You know, you could, you could support it much more strongly. So then if somebody succeeds by skill, then we have to ask the question, you know, prove it. And I always remind young people that, you know, the, 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 the burden of proof is on the affirmative. And what does that mean? If you're proposing something and you're proposing like, you know, uh, let's say, you know, Warren Buffett, you know, is the best investor of all times, or it was by skill, then we have, you have to be the one that proves it. And that's, that's an important part of debate yeah. and just understanding how so, to learn. And he actually talks about this, right? Because he says, he, he brings this example. He's like, if there was only, you know, if there was only Ben Graham, you know what I mean? The yeah. ability to claim he did it and it was luck is much more skewed than if you say like, okay, the, and I think the flipping coins thing, I think he actually brings that up. I can't remember exactly the quote, but he says like, the, the thing is when you take all of the world of investors and you find an incredible number of people, you, you find a large number of people who have an incredible track record and they all seem to be clustered of having been students of, of Benjamin Graham and Dodd and, and following a similar philosophy and consistently getting a result. And it's a you know, multiple decade result. The probabilities that that is still luck become much harder to argue over time. But anyways, I think it goes back to key investor trade of humility of Warren Buffett bringing that up in the first place. Yep, yep. That there is that there is still a exceeding at this point exceedingly unlikely percentage. But anyways, go on. Well, it's just 
One last thing about this, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not out here claiming that any one person is, you know, their success is based upon luck rather than skill. I mean, we, our whole lives are built on the feeling that it must be our individual effort that gets us to a positive outcome. If we don't have that feeling, then society never progresses. So we need that feeling. But I would challenge, I mean, what I learned from Dr. Deming many years ago was to challenge that. And I wrote a book called Transform Your Business with Dr. Deming's 14 Points. And it's actually been selling a lot recently on Amazon because somehow I think there's some revival. And I have an online course related to it. But the point that I try to say is that when you truly understand statistics and variation and this type of thing, randomness, it starts to really challenge your thinking of the way that we reward people at work, or the way we set incentives, the way we set goals, uh, the way you know we say that someone's successful. But truthfully, there's they, we have to acknowledge that there is an underlying element of randomness. Is that Five percent, or is that ninety-five percent? Well, I'll let you decide. Yeah, are you a fan of the Nicholas Taleb works? Yeah, sure. Like fooled sure. by randomness and some of these ones. Yep, exactly, and he he goes, you know, he takes that fooled by randomness, you know, concept of what Dr. Deming taught many many years ago, which is the idea that, you know, well, I th- I think just it's it's ignoring the statistics. Dr. Deming talked about the system of profound knowledge, and he said you have to have an understanding of variation to really understand how to manage really successfully or to, to handle life. And I think that that's what, you know, he's talking about. So yeah, it's, uh, well, it's fascinating. And I think about that. So I don't know if you and I even talked about this, but one of the other companies I own, Greystoke Advisors, we are one of the 30 companies around the world licensed to teach the Shingo methodology of Shigio Shingo, who worked with Taichi Ono at at Toyota when they produced the Toyota production mm. system, largely based on the training within training within industry program and Durant and Deming is essentially yep. where lean came from, right? And if Toyota were the only people that had ever gotten the results from that, and they claimed, oh, it's because we followed Dr. Deming, you could say, eh, I don't know. I think that selling small cars when people couldn't afford Cadillacs is what did it, not, not this. But now, however many decades later, how many thousands of companies that have just absurd profit margin increase by actually listening to the customer and not doing actions that don't add value to the customer. It's it's a pretty tough argument to claim that you know that that is a rant that that, that is chance, right? Yep. Instead of Deming was right. Toyota is a great example, and I challenge you know all the listeners out there if you haven't read Dr. Deming's teachings, you know get his book Out of the Crisis or get his book the the I forgot the last the latest one, but the one he wrote in 1993. He died at the age of 93 in 1993, and his last book came out called The New Economy, but. I would challenge you to get these books because I read them and listened to him and learned with him through seminars when I was young. And to this day, I'm still thinking about the things he planted in my brain. And that's not very common when we're learning. You know, I got to tell you, he has influenced so many of the people that I have respect for. You know, we had Bob Mesta on the show who helped come up with the jobs to be done theory with Clayton Christensen at Harvard. And like, you know, people think that innovation is the opposite of process improvement. And yet Bob Mesta talks about how many of the jobs to be done theory elements came from his time studying under Deming and yeah. this voice of the customer and quit guessing and start asking, you know, and quit, you have some humility, right? We had Steve Blank on, you know, famous Stanford professor. Almost everybody's heard of the lean startup these days in business with Eric Rise, you know, based on his work, which goes back to Deming again, you know, with lean. And well, he even uh, mentions it in the lean startup about Deming. So, you know, yes. Yeah. And you go, you know, Steve Blank is so interesting. How few people know that his eighth startup he sold for eight billion, you know, 
And, and it's because he teaches with humility and humor instead of I'm a big deal. And uh, anyways, we should just do a whole yeah, other well, show about I, Deming. I'm, I'm excited about in a, in a few days, I'll be training a management team on, you know, the Deming teachings that I, that I learn and what I have in my book. And it's very exciting because you, you start to really understand that there's a lot of potential in people. And I, I say, Dr. Deming was, was a humanist, really. He, he wanted to help people bring out the, the best in people. And, and I just, I love that. And, and he understood the way, the limitations to our thinking and, you know, how lazy managers have become, particularly in Asia now. You know, it's really significant that the modern management method taught in MBAs in the U.S. about KPIs and measuring everything and all that has come to, to Asia. And now a good boss is a boss that sits behind a desk with a bunch of computer monitors looking at everybody's KPIs. And what a disaster. You, you look at, depending who you believe, it's somewhere between 75% and 95% of lean initiatives, continues to prevent operational excellence, call it or whatever you want. Somewhere between 75 and 95% is what people say fail. And yet you look at how many great engineers have fallen in love with the methodology, but do not embody like half of what Toyota claims the, the way the thing worked. Half of what they claim the thing is, is respect for every person and has been so lost in so many engineering things and people get treated like pawns and, and movable assets instead of a real life human being. Shocker that people don't buy in the way they did at Toyota. Yep. Anyway. Well, I, I, one last little story. When I was at Pepsi, we had a, I worked in the manufacturing plant and we had the bottles would come in in the production line and then they would be clean in the cleaning machine and then they would then they would go to the filling machine where we would put in the, the Pepsi and, and, and seal them. And there was a space in between these two machines that we called an accumulation table. So it made a lot of sense to, to, to any American manager that, you know, if one machine goes down, if the, if the, if the, the, the filling machine goes down, the cleaning machine can still run and keep filling up the accumulation table so that, you know, things can go on. Well, the Japanese method and, you know, a lot of that Toyota method and what Deming would teach is that, you know, by, by eliminating that accumulation table, it seems crazy, but it actually focuses in on what's the problem and we have to fix the problem, you know, as a team and, and as a group, it's not individual units. And, you know, that's just one of many types of thinking. So highly recommend Deming's Yeah, it's teaching. like cure the disease, don't put a Band-Aid over it, right? Exactly. I love it. Okay, listen, let's get through the rest of these here. Tell, tell yep. us what these eight, tell us the other categories these 800 stories fall in. So the next one, number four, we only have six. So we got number four, and this one is misplaced trust. And I talk about one of my guests, Azran, who started a, a low-cost airline, and he basically took it from startup to a billion dollars in revenue and 2,500 staff, and he did it you know, over a short amount of time, just six years, and he listed it on the Malaysian stock market. Of course, what he had been, he had trusted his boss, who was a very rich guy, to leverage up and borrow money to own more shares of Asia X, which was the company that Air Asia X that he started. And then when they did the IPO, he listened to the investment bankers who said, hey, you know, you should borrow more money from us, pledge your shares, and then show everybody that you're buying more shares. And so he really trusted all of these guys. And in the end, everything worked out. He did the IPO. It was a six-time return. It was great. And as I say, everything worked out. And then I add two words to that, and that is on paper. Then what happened was we had three tragic, you know, disasters, you know, that came from Malaysia Airlines had two down, one in Amsterdam and one the Kuala Lumpur flight that was going to Bang Beijing. And then an Indonesia Air Indonesia Air Asia flight went down. So all three of these happened in the same year and everything basically crashed. And he lost everything that he had. And basically what, you know, 
this is one aspect. There's many aspects to this particular story. But what I say is the number one or number four most common thing is people misplace trust. And what I would say is, you know, you need to get to know the person you're investing with, but also remember that trust only develops over time. And so, you know, it's amazing the number of stories of people that just said, well, someone came along with an idea and I gave him $10,000. And you're like, what? And so it's amazing how professionals can drop all their scrutiny <laughs> for some reason and trust somebody that they would never listen to, you know, otherwise. So that story of misplaced I, trust is a big one. It's funny. I, you know, b- both for and against that one for me, I moved back home to a little farm town I was from in Canada as a 25-year-old and newly made millionaire and proceeded to write a check for 20 grand to a guy that I'd known for like two weeks, which... Um, surprise, surprise turned into a big goose egg over time. Right. And, and yet I look at the new fund and the way we're building our real estate investment firm now, and it's me, my brother, my mentor and business partner starting from 2001. So this, this year will be our 20th year. And the woman who started our charity 10 years ago for us that I started working with in 2002 in Southern California, her husband's my best friend, Australian surfer guy. Right. And And then the CEO that we hired to come be our chief investment officer and CEO married my wife's college roommate from 20 years ago. I taught him how to surf 17 years ago. And like, you know what I mean? Like this time around, we're going to do this different, (laughs) right? So yeah. And the point is, there's no hack. There's no shortcut. There's no secret to building trust. Trust builds over time. So just be careful when you all of a sudden find yourself just about to write a check to somebody that you hardly know that the manipulative skills of some people are so good. You know, one of my other guests, Rob Angel, who came up with the the game, the board game Pictionary, one of the most successful board games of all time, made a lot of money from it. But he tells a story of how he was basically just conned and defrauded of, you know, a, amount of money from a guy that was just a great swindler. So just try to avoid misplaced trust. So number five. Start small, right? Date yeah. before you get married. Exactly. Go ahead. Exactly. So number five, one of my guests, David Stein, who has a great podcast called Money for the Rest of Us, and he's a really, really methodical guy. If you ever listen to his podcast, he really puts in a lot of time to each episode that he does. And so what he had done is he kind of finished his career working at an investment you know, firm, and, and he was you know, a successful guy in the area of investing. And then he went to a hedge fund and he just got so excited about the trading, the buzz that was going on at this hedge fund. And he got so excited by it that he decided he wanted to become a trader. Well, to keep the story short, basically, he didn't succeed at trading. And he basically, you know, had a lot of difficulty making a significant amount of money. But what happened was that in his story was that he had forgot that he had a trade that it put on that would buy silver at a certain price if it fell to that price. And basically uh, that price was hit. The the trade was executed and then silver kept falling. So he lost $25,000 from it. But as he said, you know, the most, the hardest part for him was that I should have known better myself. But the thing that this really highlights is this idea of number five, is failed to monitor their investment. And you find that there's a lot of people, and I have a friend of mine who built a successful business. You know, think of all the entrepreneurs listening to this show. You're super busy with your work. And my friend said to me, I said, so how do you manage your personal investments? And he says, he said, let me show you the bottom drawer of my desk. And I was like, okay. He said, everything that comes in from everything I ever invested in or whatever, I just put in that drawer. I don't have time to look at it. And he does not, he did not monitor it. Now, sometimes not monitoring can be good you know, in passive investing. And sometimes we can say if you're owning the right thing or you happen by luck or by skill to find a great investment, 
great. But in most cases, what you find is someone, you know, uh, a common mistake is someone comes up to a friend and says, I want to start a restaurant in the neighborhood. It's really going to be great. And then you give money to this friend of yours to say, yeah, this is a great idea. So what I recommend to, to deal with this problem is to follow a regular predetermined monitoring process. If, if someone came to me and said, hey, would you invest in my business, in my, let's say, restaurant? If I liked the idea and I thought the guy could execute it, yeah, I may put some money in. But the one thing I learned from all of these interviews is that based upon this idea of failed to monitor their investment is I would say, what I want to do is talk at one hour a month, the last you know Saturday of every month. And I want to go through the numbers with you that time. And let's do that every month. And the guy will definitely agree to it before you put the money in. Yeah. <laughs> the key is the timing on that one. Okay. Exactly. Number six. Number six. Well, this one's a, a, a tough one because basically I know a lot of people may be frustrated with what I say about this, but there was a, a really impressive woman, Viola Llewellyn, who's a real powerhouse. And she started a business in basically in Africa to try to fund SMEs in Africa. And very exciting. She convinced a lot of people, but she ended up getting an investor that put money in and they had committed to put in a large amount of money, but they put up a small amount in the beginning. And so she went back to her potential SMEs in Africa to tell them, you know, that the funding is coming, everything's great, everything's going well. But eventually what happened is that this firm started kind of falling apart. The commitment to this started falling apart. And in the end, she never received the money. And basically, you know, the reason why this story is so good is that uh, Viola was really good about talking about the emotions. You know, she basically talked about how she felt about herself. You know, she said her stomach was in knots every night. Her pride shrunk to a thumbnail and her husband was having to work extra and exhausted all of their retirement savings to make this work. But the quotes that she, that I got from this, that I'll, I'll just say four quotes that she said that really can highlight how we feel when we start a startup and it starts falling apart. She said, she said, I was, I was worried that, you know, people would think African businesses are failures. Black people can't manage businesses. Women can't manage businesses. Microfinance doesn't work. And all of these things really were tearing out of her, at her. Luckily, she had a good partner and she managed to kind of survive and pivot and create another business out of that. But the point is, is that the mistake number six, most common mistake is kind of a catch-all and that is invested in a startup company. We all want to have it. We all see the success stories, but the reality is startup companies are binary investments. You're either going to lose it all or you're going to make it. And chances are you're going to lose it all. So as I say, the best way to handle this is start from this reality, you are likely to lose everything. Which I love because, again, one of the kings of startups, the, the guy who inspired the book, The Lean Startup, Steve Blank, sold a business for $8 billion, says, hey, I would, I would put your chances at one in a thousand or less. You know what I mean? And if you go into it with that level of humility, right, you actually increase your chances when you're like, hey, I need this evidence to prove that I'm in one in a thousand or maybe one in 10,000. Like what, you don't know I mean? Like that's the strong burden of evidence, yep. right? Yeah, and I, well, think, listen, I think the thing, the thing to think about about that is simply that what does it mean to build a successful business? It means that you have real cash flow over time that you can pay dividends out, you can support big salaries, that type of stuff. Yeah, I love it. Well, this is fun. I, I was fascinated to see, you know, 800 stories can kind of be shrunk down into six things that are honestly quite related and overlap in many ways, right? Well, listen, if people want your books or to take your courses or things like this, where's the best place for them to connect with you? Just go to myworstinvestmentever.com. Listen to the show. You can go to the about page and you can basically email me. It goes directly to my email box and I respond to every email. Well, this has been fun. Thanks for making time for this.
us and, and keep up the good work. Thanks for having me on and thanks for helping me share this journey. Love it. Okay, everybody check out Andrew's show, check out his website and uh, talk to you all later.